everyone, this is April Hansen. I am the Associate Editor of Arkansas Catholic, and this is the first episode of our podcast we are calling Arkansas Catholic Asks. We will be asking questions of some of our newsmakers in the church and what matters most to you. Today we have Jennifer Verkamp with us. She is the Director of Catholic Immigration Services in Little Rock here at the Diocese. So welcome, Jennifer. Thanks. Um, Tell us, you know, thanks for being our first ever guest on Arkansas Catholic Ask. So for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm from a small town of Charleston outside of Fort Smith. Um, my home parish is Sacred Heart, and my, probably a lot of people know, my father's a deacon, um, and come from a fairly large family on my dad's side, extended family, and yeah, I've been here for, it's been almost a year at the diocese now, time has really flown, (laughs) um, yeah, I studied, uh, social work recently from Boston College, and have had a really big passion with working with immigrants and refugees and social justice work within the church. And so it's kind of a long story, but in short, that's how I got here. And so I feel like that's a little bit about me. That's that's awesome. Well, and something too that um, happened just a few months back, you got engaged. Yes. Congratulations. So um, one of the questions, we wanted to kind of do a little bit of icebreaker questions with our guests. So um, since you just got engaged not too long Uh ago, tell us how did you meet your fiance? Okay. Yeah. So um, it's kind of a different way that we met. I was actually in Chile for a internship um, with my grad school program. So I was there for about a semester and you know i was open to dating and you know i believe in you know whenever you're dating someone you're looking to see would you possibly marry that person or not and at that point i was like well i'm not really going to date people in chile but i was there for five months didn't really know anyone was living on my own and i thought i'm gonna give this catholic match website a try and so um because i thought you know chile was a predominantly catholic country and so um thought, you know, maybe I could just meet someone and really would just hit it off as friends and maybe they'd let me in their friend group while I was there. (laughs) So I did it and I said I would do it for a month. It cost some money and on my grad school budget, I said, I'm only doing it for one month and then I'm going to be done. Did it for a month. There really was no one on there from Chile. You know, I talked to a couple people and was just like, eh, this really isn't for me. And um, then when a month was up, I didn't know that the website would auto-renew and charge you for a second month. So I was really frustrated because I was like, really can't afford this and I'm kind of just I'm really done with this isn't this isn't working out the way I thought it would right and um so I uh I thought well whatever you know I'm not going to shut it down now I've paid for it but I wasn't really using it and about a week after it auto renewed um my fiance Jeff messaged me and uh, I was like who is this Jeff guy and um I went and looked at his profile and just saw we had a lot in common you know with our of course you know we're both Catholic but how we kind of viewed the church and volunteerism and both like to travel you know I'm into the Spanish language he was into French and we just messaged back and forth and I still had two and a half months left in Chile so it's a really good way for us to get to know each other you know we had to really work on communication through messaging and um, even we went old school and sent letters a little bit and then um, did like uh, video like Skyping and um, after two and a half months we stuck with it and we met in person and, you know, I told him the whole time, I said, I'm graduating from school. I don't know where I'm going to find a job. I might go back to Boston. I even thought maybe D.C. or staying abroad. But I said, you know, I'll look at Little Rock, too. And, you know, we just said, we'll see where things take us. And, 
you know, God had plans for me to be here. <laughs> so, at the, you know, this job and so things just kind of came together. He's from Little Rock, and that was also crazy because, you know, my family is from Arkansas. So he was living in Little Rock um, working. And, um, yeah, it just kind of came together. And, you know, before we actually met in person, because he had to do some work and personal travel, we talked from five different countries before we finally met each other in Arkansas in person. <laughs> so Wow, that's some divine intervention, especially yeah. that he's from Arkansas. I was going to ask you, you know, where yeah. is he from? That's yeah, amazing. From from Little Rock. So all his family's from here. And, yeah, and so I was able to move to Little Rock and just kind of, you know, with thought, like, let's see where things go. And, well, now we're engaged. That's awesome. <laughs> so, when is the wedding date? Uh, January 26th of awesome. 2019. So in like three months. All right. Well, listeners, keep, keep yeah. them in your prayers. <laughs> you <don't need> them. <laughs> well, so um, you kind of talked about your background in Charleston, but um, something I thought was interesting, especially because you're in this kind of line of work, mm -hmm. um, you have two twin sisters from Guatemala. So how did that kind of shape your heart for being a global citizen? Because I believe that's a term that you've mentioned when we've talked in the past, you yeah. know, global citizenship. So mm -hmm. kind of talk about talk about that. Yeah, I think it, it really impacted me. Um, just, you know, it kind of started to pique my interest a little bit in Spanish. Um, but then, you know, just knowing that I had actual siblings that were born in a completely different reality from what I was born in, and I always, from a young age, too, I remember sometimes I would just, like, lay there at night and think, someday I want to go on a mission trip or something. And I thought, like, a week or so, and then that would be it. Um, and, uh, you know, I ended up, um, finally I got to go to Honduras for six weeks um, after my freshman year of college, and I kept going back and forth to Central America. But I went to several countries there, but the place I hadn't seen yet was Guatemala. And so I knew, you know, I said... I've seen these other countries, but I really want to see where my sisters are from. And so that is kind of where things really got the ball rolling. And I just, I don't know, I was really inspired um, from that. And then I feel like the whole global citizen um, aspect came into play with just interacting with, with people from other countries, but then also people that, you know, immigrants that are living here and just finding those commonalities, but then also those differences, which I think really make the world really beautiful you know it's so interesting to talk to someone that has a different culture or they eat different foods and um you know but then also with that comes seeing different injustices that maybe um that we don't experience here or maybe a different population like immigrants would experience here mm -hmm. and so i think it just kind of started with that idea with my twin sisters and just kind of grew into this whole global citizen idea and i guess i use that term um because it was something I had learned in social work school. Um, I took a class called Global Citizenship, and I just thought that that was kind of an idea. But it's interesting. Everyone kind of has a different idea of what that means to be a global citizen. Interesting. But, mm -hmm. Well, and you've been to a lot of different places. You've kind of really globetrotted throughout college, it yeah, seems like. So tell me, Yeah. Well, tell me where are some of the places you've studied or done mission work. Just kind of mm -hmm. name a few. Yeah, I did some... Um, you know, a lot of service work in, in Guatemala, working with um, an oblate, Kathy Jarvis, and then Sister Rosalie um, from San Scalasca doing a, a um, we got a, a girl scholarship program started. So that, that was where a lot of it started. I haven't been as involved lately since I've moved, but they have, I mean, it's really grown. And they, Kathy and Sister Rosalie have been super instrumental with getting girls, um, or, you know, bringing in donations for scholarships. And then, um, 
you know, I did a, a learning trip in Haiti with a graduate school class. And then, um, I guess it was a little over a year ago, we went to Zambia to do a research project with one of my professors who's from Zambia, mm-hmm. um, but now is a professor at Boston College. And we were doing work on how a, um, a local community would maybe have ideas to get to um, zero new um, cases of HIV AIDS zero new deaths, and zero gaps in care. And so that's been some of my experiences. Um, you know, it, um, it also has just, a lot of it has started out with going and visiting and staying with maybe an orphanage in Honduras and just being there and helping with sweeping the floors and playing with kids and babysitting. But I feel like it's been different things that have just kind of grown into now what I'm fortunate to have a career in a service field. So Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, what... Was there a project or maybe even a person or um, any sort of experience that you had overseas that was really impactful for your faith and now you're in your career now? Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely this Girl Scholarship Program was extremely impactful and it was something I never thought that I would be involved with. Um, You know, it sounds impressive, but I really was at the right place at the right time. But the person that impacted me with that was Kathy Jarvis, the lady I had mentioned that is an oblate. Um, She's one of those people that she, I don't think she has a shy bone in her body. Um, And she just goes and she sees a person for an actual human being, you know, every single person she meets. And she will communicate with them and she is willing to do absolutely anything to help somebody. I mean, she goes to the extreme, whether she's in Guatemala Mm -hmm. or she's in Arkansas, and she gives and gives and gives of, you know, in so many multiple ways. And so that's really inspired me. And she has, she's very knowledgeable too when it comes to social justice and, you know, I feel like Catholic social teaching. Mm -hmm. And so that really inspired me to, um, you know, the combination of working with her, with the Guatemala program and just being around her. Um, And where is she from? She's originally from New York. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So she's from New York City, um, but her dad is from Arkansas. And so she eventually moved back to Arkansas. And um, the Benedictine sisters actually raised her father and um, three brothers in St. Joseph's Orphanage. And so she had that connection. And then my great aunt was a nun at St. Scholastica. So we both had that connection when we met there. And then mm-hmm. we've, yeah. So I feel like I've learned probably over the last six or seven years from her. I mean, I can't even explain how much, honestly. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, so I do want to talk about your trip to the border. Mm -hmm. Um, So on June 2nd, you went as a part of, you were going to the conference, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network Incorporated. um, That was in Tucson. And you traveled to the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, and which we covered in Arkansas Mm -hmm. Catholic this past summer. So tell me a little bit about that, though, what you saw, who you met. Yeah, so we went with a group of, there was three attorneys and then one immigration specialist from, also from our program here, and then myself. And we went, um, we parked our car on the Arizona side, and then we walked across the border, and we saw just a huge line of, we guess probably about 100 individuals of people that were kind of, um, you know, backed up against one side where there was the walkway kind of like a sidewalk um with maybe like a tin roof covering we saw multiple adults and children that were just sitting there or laying there and had whatever 
personal belongings. And so, um, we knew we were going to talk with people, but we really didn't know what we were doing. And the policy had literally just been let out that children were probably going to be separated. Mm -hmm. And so we went and, um, we, we spoke with the families, you know, and they kind of told their story and they were warned about what could happen. But you see a lot of them at the beginning of the line, they had been outside there for as much as seven days. And then people at the end of the line had been there for a whole day. Um, and this is all outdoor. I this mean, is it's all very, outdoor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, in June mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I, I just kind of followed the attorneys around some. We handed out snacks and then some toys Mm -hmm. and other people um, both from the U.S. and from Mexico would come and bring food and water, um, diapers, formula, because there's children of all ages and even, you know, a pregnant woman. Um, And there's an organization, it's a Jesuit organization that also, um, well, they're called the Kino Border Initiative. And so they were, I guess they had a partnership maybe with the Mexican side I don't know if you call them border patrol or police, and they could pick up a couple of people at a time, take them to their place, let them shower, and then bring them back. And so we interacted with people from that organization. Um, yeah, we heard their stories as to why they were coming, um, and it ranged from fleeing violence to extreme poverty. And um, I think, you know, when you tell someone that your child is going to be taken away from you, I don't think people really believe that. Um, some of them because who would think that that would actually happen, you know? And then some cried and kept saying, you know, I, I don't want my child to be taken away, obviously, but um, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if they went through with it. I don't know if they left, but, you know, the journey can take at least up to a month to come from Honduras to Gua- from Guatemala, and it's very traumatic in itself. And so you make that journey and you get here, and then, you know, um, you're told your child might be taken away. So I don't... I don't know. I don't know what happened. Well, and I know that when we spoke before about this, you mentioned there was a mom um, with a really young child on her back, I believe. Kind of talk about that. There was a baby or... um... Yeah, there was a... She had a three-year-old daughter. She was actually laying on a mat and was sleeping. And I was concerned because she looked... When you first look at her, she looked healthy, but she was... You know, with all the people going back and forth, she was just out. And hopefully she was just taking a nap. But I don't know if, you know, dehydration or what. But, you know, the mom had talked about being um, threatened by a man um, in Guatemala who wanted to sexually assault her. And the mother said, you know, no. And then the man came back and and threatened and said, you know, if you tell me no, um, I'll do something to your daughter. And she said she didn't even know how the man knew that she even had a daughter. And um, so at that point, she said, I have to go. And so she fled. The father of her child is in the U.S. And then um, and then also, I think, you know, it was about a month or so before that her grandfather had been murdered. And so I think she thought, this is my option. And, uh, you know, so she was crying while she was telling her story. And then when we said her child might be taken away, then that was even adding to the trauma and the emotions and um, so the, the attorneys gave her advice as to what to do and yeah, uh, I don't know. Do you still think about those families? Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely still think about the families and, and wonder, um, you know, a, a lot of them I know were separated for a couple of months and a lot have been reunified, but a lot, there, there were some too, you know, the parents were sent back and the child was still here. Um, 
And so there's just so many questions out there, you know, mm-hmm. and so many risks with such a vulnerable population and, and children that are involved, you know, um, of things that can happen. So, yeah, I do because I, I just I have no idea. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about as well is kind of, you know, break down what is a myth and what is a fact mm-hmm. and um, about people that are coming from another country that have, you know, oftentimes risk their lives to get here. Right. Um, so I want to talk about just the things that people say <laughs> yeah. um, that you hear just often. So people often say instead of crossing over the border illegally, you know, unfortunately people say they should just get in line or mm-hmm. apply for citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, we've heard that a lot. So. Yes. You know, and I've been told by those in immigration that there really isn't a line, per se. Right. And it's just not that simple. So kind of explain that process. Is there a line? And just Not really. Um, I mean, I guess if you're waiting in a line, that could take about 20 years. Really? But, um, yeah, it's, you know, th- there's several different reasons. Um, as we all know, our immigration system is extremely broken. Um, we're within that system there's a visa backlog you know so a lot of the time an immigrant can come in because they have an eligible family member that can apply for them or can petition for them Um, and it depends on what family member it is how long it can take and also what country you're from so for example if you're from mexico um, it's going to take a lot longer for you if a family member petitioned um, than maybe if you were from i don't know chile or something Um, you know, a cousin can't petition for someone, of course, an aunt and an uncle. So it depends on what family member it is. If it's a sibling, it's going to take much longer. Um, that's one of the longest categories. But there's such a backlog of thousands of visas that it can take some people a decade or more, even up to 20 years before they're actually they're actually told, yes, a visa is finally available for you. But then there's a process that goes through with that. You know, first you have to file forms to even prove that you are actually related to this person. And then when there is a visa available, there's even more forms that you have to go through. And with that, you know, once everything goes through, you're not even a citizen at that point. You know, you would become a legal permanent resident, so a green card holder. And after that, you have to wait. Typically, it's, um, for most people, depending on circumstances, um, it's five-year waiting process. Then you can apply for citizenship. And with that, though, you also have to be able to um, do an English language interview and a civics test. Um, so there's a lot that goes with it. Um, so, you know, and, and, and a lot of them, too, are also fleeing uh, persecution and violence. And that would be, you know, your asylees um, or if someone was given refugee status in another country and then came over um, so well, so why does it take um, longer for certain countries? Because that those countries are where we have the majority of our immigrants that have you know so Mexico is one um, I think the Philippines, uh, the China China mainland um, I think those are the three maybe India too. Okay, well, and for somebody that's fleeing violence, you know if they're if they have a direct threat. Mm-hmm. And they have to wait, you know, 10, 20 years. That's just not an option for them. Right, yeah. And so then a lot of, a lot of the time what they would do is maybe once they've, they've come to our country, they can present themselves for asylum. But see, then you have to prove that you're being persecuted if you're, it's a member of, of one of five groups um, if you're a part of. So it depends on if you can prove that you're being persecuted due to um, your race, your nationality, your, um, religion, 
you know, political opinion or a social group. So you have to be able to prove that. And more and more, that process is even becoming more difficult in our country to prove it. I believe now you even have to prove that your country won't assist you if you're being persecuted. So there's so many levels that you have to go through. Um, you know, someone can't just arrive and say, I'm being abused by my partner, you know. Well, are you a member of one of these groups? Are you part of that? No. Well, then you don't qualify for asylum. Wow. You know. Well, and what about people that are fleeing extreme poverty? You know, they can't. No. That just does not. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that. You would not qualify for asylum for that um, at all. You know, people that are wanting to come make a better lives for themselves and their families. That's not even close to being um, asylum. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, and I also wanted to talk to you because we hear the terms undocumented and also illegal mm-hmm. quite a bit. Yes. Um, so tell me, you know, why is undocumented a better term than illegal? It's pretty simple. It's just more humane, you know. <laughs> um, you know, someone told me that wasn't an undocumented immigrant. They were they were explaining. It. They said, "I'm not illegal. That's not my title." You know, and if a if a person went and I don't know robbed a store and then they spent some time in prison or something. Once they come out, we don't call them an illegal because they committed a crime, you know. And, uh, you know, technically in our government, of course, the law is you don't cross the border um, without some sort of inspection, and it is breaking the law, but we also don't have just laws. But that doesn't mean that you give them a derogatory term by calling them an illegal You know, if you want to describe them, then by saying an undocumented immigrant, meaning maybe they don't have, you know, a social security number, a green card. And um, people also sometimes say unauthorized immigrant, um, but undocumented has seemed to be kind of the blanket term that is more um, appropriate. Mm -hmm. So, Well, and another thing that we hear pretty often is, you know, we talk about welfare and, you know, taxes are really a big issue. So do undocumented immigrants pay taxes? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> they do. Yeah, and that's a big stereotype. Um, they pay a lot of tax, a lot of taxes. Sales tax, of course, is one. Every time you purchase something, they're paying sales tax just like we are. Um, they'll also pay property taxes if they own a home, um, and then also indirectly if they are renting from somebody. They also um, they pay um, into state and local taxes. The IRS actually will give an undocumented immigrant, what's called an ITIN um, number, which stands for Individual Tax Identification Number, and that allows them to pay um, taxes, which they will actually never reap the benefits for. I was going to say, do they actually receive a tax refund, or do they actually... Yeah, they don't, and um, yeah, they say, I think it's three-quarters of undocumented immigrants will pay state and federal taxes. Wow. Mm -hmm. And the Justice for Immigrants website, which is an organization funded by the USCCB, actually said that there's an estimation of $11.64 billion every year from undocumented immigrants and state and local taxes that are put into our economy. Mm -hmm. So it's really benefiting our economy to have immigrants here. Yeah. If you want to look at it just from an economic standpoint and take out all the humanness and just boil it down to that it's helping us, mm-hmm. you know, they're helping us, um, economically, which you know, obviously there's much more important things to that. But if you want to get to that point, then yeah, we need them <laughs> <So>. <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, um, 
And also, we too often hear people say that, you know, violent criminals, drug cartels are flooding in and lying about who they are to get sympathy, you know, at the border. But what has been your experience with just people that you met at the border and also just um, undocumented immigrants that you've dealt with in Mm -hmm. your career? Yeah, and I've interacted with a lot, and I personally have never seen Never seen that. I've never encountered that. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen because, of course, we know that it does. But, you know, I'd also say in in every group of people, you know, no matter what nationality or race, there's always going to be someone that, um, you know, performs criminal acts. Um, But I've personally never, I've never encountered that, you know. Um, Hope I never do. But it's very rare compared to the vast majority of immigrants that, um, are coming up, and I know a lot of times whenever we hear immigrant, we think of people coming up from the southern border, which makes you think drug cartels, but that's that's just false. It's it's um, most people are not in that circumstance. It's it's mostly fleeing violence, persecution, or extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. So. What countries usually are people coming from in those situations? From um, from like not just from Mexico. I think people just right. think Mexico. I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, all over right now, we we see a lot coming from the Northern Triangle, which is um, uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where a lot of people are coming from. But you know, we also have people coming from several other countries um, for different reasons. You know, um, people coming from countries in Africa, people coming from Haiti—that's a really big one. Um, you know, so it, it really it really just depends. I think you know we see. The majority coming from Mexico in the Northern Triangle because of where we're geographically located, you know. But you see in Europe where people are fleeing violence and persecution, and poverty um, from Africa, you know. So, well, you know, there are many Catholics out there that feel strongly about securing our borders, and immigration has become a very politically charged issue. Um, but it's really at its core a moral issue. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to people who are against undocumented immigrants or really just immigration in general? And what does our faith teach us? Yeah. So, and, and first thing too, since you mentioned the border, um, I think that, because, you know, we hear priests and bishops and lay people talking about immigration a lot. No one is saying not to secure our borders. Um, there's actually, you know, you can see even on the JFI website as well, where that question is answered and they say, you know, the bishops do believe in securing your borders and that you, it is important to know who's coming and going. It's just that we don't have just laws that are allowing for the, um, the needed flow of migration, you know, and also that migrants do have, um, a, um, or all people have the right to migrate. Um, you know, and people that are against undocumented immigrants specifically, um, you know, it is, it's an issue that you have to take time to grapple with. You know, I used to actually be on the other side. I had no yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I grew up not around immigrants and I also thought people need to get in line and they should learn English. And I had no clue, but it took, um, you know, getting to know people and asking them questions. You know, I had, I started having friends that were, um, uh, Hispanic and undergrad and, um, I found out eventually they were undocumented. I said, just tell me your story. You know, what is it that you're going through? And, you know, not everyone's going to react this way, but for me, I just couldn't believe some of my best friends were, were suffering from this. And uh, so I think it's getting to know people, being open, and, um, you know, talking to people and just really reflecting on the issue. But I think it also comes down to um, 
because they're human beings, you know, just like we are. Um, um, I had a professor at Boston College that, that said multiple times, those of us that were born in the U.S., that we, we won the birth lottery. Mm-hmm. You know, we were born on this side of the border. And, you know, but the, the church is very clear on where they stand with, with immigrants and welcoming them. You know, one of my favorite lines, there's, there's so many lines in the Bible that really defend the migrant, you know, and even, you know, Jesus himself had to migrate and flee persecution and violence with Mary and Joseph. But, you know, from Matthew 25, it says, for I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And that's Jesus, the person that we worship every day saying that, you know, he's saying that he is in the immigrant, just like he's in all of us. And we're, you know, he basically said, we're obligated. We have to, we have to welcome them because, you know, he's in them and that's, that's what you do. And, um, you know, it's tough and there's a lot of fear out there. And I think we have a tendency to want to put blame on people, but, you know, I think it just comes to being open, praying about it, reflecting and talking to people, people that are familiar with the issue, but then really go talk to someone that is an immigrant and learn about their story, you know. So that's kind of our call for people today is just to open their hearts a mm-hmm. little bit. And um, and that's really all the questions I have for you today, um, Jennifer, but thank you so much for joining us on our first episode. Yeah really nice thanks for asking me (laughs) absolutely well and we'd like to end our arkansas catholic asks podcast with a prayer um we're hoping to do this with each one relating to whatever topic we discuss Mm -hmm. so i've got this prayer um for migrants and refugees it's from the united states conference of catholic bishops and we're not going to read the whole prayer but um jennifer if you can read that portion of it so let's go ahead and pray yeah lord jesus Today you call us to welcome the members of God's family who come to our land to escape oppression, poverty, persecution, violence, and war. Like your disciples, we too are filled with fear and doubt and even suspicion. We build barriers in our hearts and in our minds. Lord Jesus, help us by your grace to banish fear from our hearts that we may embrace each of your children as our own brother and sister. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much again, yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you. And it was fun. Absolutely. And this has been Arkansas Catholic Asks. Join us next time.